If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Sometimes you just get an unexpected dramatic pause. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Don't blink or you'll miss her. Simon Peter's mother-in-law, that is. I would call her by her name, but Mark forgot to write it down. She is mentioned in this story almost in passing, and most of the time her presence does not prompt questions about her, but about her son-in-law, Peter, who is known to us as Simon in this passage, but who is later renamed Peter by Jesus, hence Simon Peter. Simon Peter has a mother-in-law, which must mean he was married, a married disciple. Was he a good husband? Did he have kids? Did that make Jesus the godfather? (laughs) But back to the mother-in-law. What kind of mother-in-law did Peter have? Mother-in-laws usually have reputations. And I am rather curious to know what Peter's mother-in-law would have said about him. Was she happy when her daughter became engaged to Peter, a good Jewish boy from a good Jewish family? And maybe, oh, he's a partner with his older brother in the family fishing business. The boys took it over from their father a few years ago. They've been making a nice profit ever since. Big hauls of fish every day and brisk sales at the market. Peter oversees the day-to-day operations and Andrew takes care of the accounts. They call their business the A&P. If you're a millennial, I'll send you a text explaining that, or you can ask the nearest boomer. 
So, the mother-in-law, was she disappointed when Peter left the fishing business? I mean, that is what happened because we know the rest of the story. Things move pretty quickly in the Gospel of Mark. It's all action and it hardly seems like Mark cares if we keep up or not. In just the first chapter, Jesus shows up at the lake and convinces a ragtag bunch of fishermen to follow him. Peter is one of those men. Jesus and the newly minted disciples go immediately from the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, where Jesus teaches in the synagogue as one having authority, not as the scribes, and then heals the man said to be possessed by a demon. As soon as they leave the synagogue, they go to Peter's house, presumably because they need a place to rest. They enter the house to find Peter's mother-in-law in bed with a fever. And her illness is keeping her from her role as chair of the hospitality committee. Mark's description of the healing is rather sparse, no conversation, none of the back and forth so common in other healing stories. He simply presents the problem and Jesus responds to it. He took her by the hand and lifted her up. No special words, no delay. It was as if she had called ahead to the emergency room and the doctor was just waiting with medicine ready. He took her by the hand and lifted her up. Just as sparse, is the description of what happens next. The fever left her and she began to serve them. In Greek, the verb serve is diakoneo. Generally speaking, when this word is used with a female subject, it is most often translated as serving or waiting table, tasks often assigned to servants or slaves, or if there were no servants, to women or children in the household. When the word is used with a male subject, it has been traditionally given an entirely different meaning. All of the sudden, it means to serve as a deacon in the church all very prim and proper, with seemingly no reference to taking drink orders, washing dishes, cleaning up, or wiping down the table. The translation of diaconeo depends almost entirely on the gender of the subject. As you might imagine, this is very hard for this feminist preacher woman to take. <laughs> I do not want the mother-in-law's fever to break just so she can go stand in front of a hot stove, even for Jesus. <laughs> I do not want to imagine her stripping the bed, running a load of laundry, and putting fresh sheets back on, even for Jesus. I do not want her to be restored to health if it is only so that she can tie on her apron and ready the house for guests, even for Jesus. I want him to bring her a bowl of soup with saltine crackers and tell her to rest. I want those lazy, good-for-nothing, good old boy disciples to get off their hind ends, turn off the TV, and help a sister out. It 
it sounds like Peter's mother-in-law is simply one more woman, no matter how sick she's been, who has to get up and take care of a bunch of men who apparently don't have the brains to work a microwave. <laughs> but it so happens the story is this preacher woman's favorite kind of story because the Gospels are so tricky. We are accustomed to reading the Gospels as if they are simply book jackets holding together the very important stories of how Jesus and the disciples went to Nazareth and then how they went to Galilee and then went to Jerusalem and the things that happened in between. We think of the Gospels as just containers that hold the parables, the really important teachings of Jesus. We treat those parables with special care, studying and interpreting them over and over, confident that this is where our attention should focus. But we treat the Gospels themselves as rather unimportant, almost as if they are disposable wrapping. But what about the gospel themselves? Are, are they not themselves parables? The, the gospels, I think, are the Jesus story writ large, the story into which we weave all the other stories. And one of the themes in Mark's gospel, which is really a parable, is that the disciples never get it. Bless their hearts. The parable that is the Gospel of Mark is that the chosen ones do not understand. This is the role played by the disciples, although because we rarely read the Gospel as a parable itself, the church has worked really hard at redeeming those good old boys. But if we see them for what they are in the story, gospel as parable becomes clear. Those who should understand do not, and those who shouldn't understand, understand. The disciples constantly misunderstand and misinterpret. They are always asking Jesus to explain himself. They need it spelled out, and then they want to think about it some more. They are confused and dismayed when Jesus tells them that his life will end not in a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but in crucifixion, from time to time, the disciples dream of glory and power and ask who will sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand. And this is important because it clues us in to what they thought Jesus was going to do. They thought the kingdom of God would look very much like the kingdom of Rome. If Caesar has a right-hand man, so will Jesus. And they jockey for that closest position. Their hope was that Jesus would be the mighty warrior king who would lead them in a successful rebellion against Rome so that they could be the ones in charge. But Peter's mother-in-law is actually one of the first clues as to what the Jesus movement is really about. She is the first woman mentioned in Mark's gospel Remember that Mark doesn't care about Jesus' birth, so there is no Aunt Elizabeth or Mother Mary. It is the mother-in-law who stands first in a long line of women who aid and abet Jesus and put the her in heretics. <laughs> These women 
tell us more about how to be disciples of Jesus than the actual disciples of Jesus. Because of the way the gospel is written, though, we naturally separate this mother-in-law from the whole host of women who were central to this parable disguised as a gospel. But when we name these women, we begin to see that it is the women who make up the real disciples of Jesus. The key, the red flag, the thing to watch for is that word, diakoneo. Time and time again, these women are set apart by that word. First, when Peter's mother-in-law serves, we see it again when Martha serves, creating a place for Jesus to teach and Mary to learn. The anonymous woman who washes the feet of Jesus, you remember her, she is also said to have served him, diakoneo, to minister to him. In the Gospel of Mark, while the twelve were happy to crowd around the table at the Last Supper, they fled when Jesus was taken into custody. But when the going got tough, the women showed up. The women were the last to leave the cross and the first at the tomb. A group of women, some might say a squad, (laughs) showed up. They showed up. They showed up to identify and care for Jesus' body when the boy disciples had locked themselves inside a house, unwilling to risk being identified as Jesus' followers. In the 15th chapter of Mark, when the boys were arguing about who would sit at the right and left hand in glory, we see the word diakoneo appear again, this time from the mouth of Jesus. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must serve all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, diakoneo. Here, to serve is a mutual giving and taking, a self-surrender and mutual acceptance, an exchange of love and tenderness, help and comfort, diakoneo, We are here to serve one another. And if we look at those who have been doing the serving in Mark's gospel, then we see that to follow Jesus, to be a true disciple, is to wait table, to minister to, to take care of, to offer food and drink to guests and strangers, to take care of the poor and the sick, to attend to anything that meets another's interests, to provide the things necessary to sustain life. This kind of behavior is never reported of the male disciples, but of course, this should come as no surprise, for they never understood what Jesus was trying to say or do. Perhaps you are thinking that the preacher woman is being a little rough on men either because men deserve some credit or because equality is threatening. If it is the former, the patriarchal church has spent the last 2,000 years making men feel awesome. (laughs) There is really no need to defend their honor. If it is the latter, you're still safe from the tyranny of women, for the global rankings for women in the executive and parliamentary government branches is at an all-time high at 20.7%. Women's representation in top-level leadership has decreased to only 6.6% as heads of government. 
And women are only now starting to put cracks in the stained glass ceiling of the church. Pope Francis really isn't moving us towards pink smoke coming out of the Vatican. <laughs> so cool your jets. And besides, the point of all of this is not female superiority or male stupidity. It is not, not to advocate ovaries over broveries. Matriarchy can be just as unhealthy as patriarchy. However, it is helpful for us to read the story, put it in the context of the Gospels, and to think about how the Gospel itself is a parable, and then ask, when we read our sacred stories, how many angles are there to this? Who has the power? Who isn't at the table? Who is waiting table? And also, how, if the disciples never understood the teachings of Jesus, how did the church come to be? And the answer is, in part, because of women. Why women? Because they were the least of these, the underdogs, the ones who knew what it was to not have power Women had no vote and no voice. They had little opportunity for economic independence. They were separate and subservient. So when Jesus said that he had come to bring good news to the poor and to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, the women were ready. They didn't need for Jesus to bring the kingdom of God if it looked just like the kingdom of Caesar. They understood the difference between the power of the sword and the bond of love. The good news for everyone is that the women were, were not the only ones to get it. The Gospels make the disciples out to be thick-headed, but that's because the Gospels are parables. Obviously, there were plenty of men who understood this upside-down kingdom of God that Jesus taught. The disciples have a specific role in the parable of the Gospel of Mark, but they do not represent all men, only those people who believe that they are the inner circle, who will someday get to sit on the throne of power, those who are convinced that violence in the name of God is somehow different than violence in the name of Caesar. You must serve all. Diaconeo, the root word for our word deacon, and one of the earliest offices of the church. From the very beginning, life in the church centered on service to God and to one another, both the gathered community and those outside of it. Both women and men served as deacons and they were charged with tending to the spiritual life of the church, which was inextricably linked to the service of others. They connected needs with resources. If someone needed clothing or shelter or anything at all, deacons were charged with connecting them with the resources of the congregation so that none would go hungry, be thirsty, or naked. They connected the needs of the church where there were people ready with their aprons tied on, ready to wait table to provide the things necessary for life. Waitressing for Jesus, 
so to speak. The text tells us that in the evening on the same day that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, the whole city gathered outside her door. Well, of course they did. The whole city gathered at her door, the sick, the poor, the weary. They must have heard, they must have heard that, that, that they would receive some care. They must have known that they would be cared for and ministered to. They had some idea that they would be served mercy and compassion. And this is the question we are left with. Who is showing up at our door? Who is showing up at our door? Is it the poor, the sick, and the weary? Is it the addicted, the depressed? Do they know that the, the buildings with steeples and, and crosses, do they know that this is where they can find radical hospitality? Or, or what about when something bad happens, when the local mosque is vandalized? Do our Muslim neighbors know that they can come here and knock on the door and they will hear, "Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Please let us help scrub the pay, spray paint off the mosque walls. We're so sorry that happened. And when those who are grieving and lost need someone to sit with them, do they know to show up at the church steps because we've already prepared a place for them? Come on in, friends. You'll be in good company. Let's walk each other home. When refugee families are dropped off in a new town surrounded by strange people with strange customs, is it a steeple they look for? Because those buildings with steeples, they should be filled with people who are driven by hope, not fear. Those steeple people will open their homes and their hearts, or at least that's what refugees should have heard about us. Head to the nearest steeple for help. And the whole city gathered around the door. Our story reminds us of what Jesus' followers are supposed to be doing. Open the doors, break out the welcome mat, pull up extra chairs, and put out more place settings. Around here, we only serve everyone. So, who needs an apron? You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.